Would you pray with me? Father, we just revel in this, that it was finished on the cross. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's been removed. Jesus, we praise you. And that you would give your life for us. And God, that you would accept his sacrifice and raise him from the dead so that we too with him can one day be raised. And even now experience the newness of life in Christ. Oh Lord, we thank you for this. Amen. I just got to say, you're a really good-looking group of people this morning. <laughs> you, I would dare say you're a better-looking group of people this morning than you were a week ago. You guys have really stepped up your game, and it's working. I just, I'm so proud of you. Um, but today's pretty special, isn't it? And you think of, I, I want you to think of all these things you did to get ready today. I mean, you guys, some of you went shopping for very specific outfits. Uh, you practiced getting your hair done just right. Some of us used a little extra polish. <laughs> you have pictures later today that you have to look on point for. You have festivities. A lot of you are celebrating the bringing in of the new covenant by having a giant piece of pork cooking right now. And there's a few of you who still think I'm talking about the Sunday of the Masters. And um, we'll, we'll deal with that later. But this is a significant day. This is a special day. This is, this is it for us believers, right? That Christ rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. God has given us his ultimate statement that he's going to keep all of his promises. There's this final victory. And this empty tomb, it motivates us, it empowers us, it emboldens our, our testimony. It, it, it builds us up in our walk with the Lord. Our God is unbeatable. And life with him doesn't have to wait to begin after we die, but it starts now. For many of us, it started some time ago. Easter just has a way of stirring our faith, stirring our affections, bolstering us up. And so I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to dig into God's word with you. And we're going we're gonna to continue in the Psalms of Ascents this morning. We're going we're gonna to wrap up our time in this portion of Scripture with Psalm 132. But as we do it, what we're going to see is that the Psalm of Ascents, in this psalm in particular, there's some pretty big promises of what God is going to accomplish. And he accomplishes that through the empty tomb and the finished work of Christ. That that's the pathway to his promises coming true. But this, this psalm is actually the longest psalm in the psalm of ascents. 
and we're going to really zero in on what I'm calling the last, the last verse of the song. It's verses 13 to 18 are where we're going to zero in, but we're gonna, let's build our way up there. This psalm starts with this appeal to God. God, would you remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, and then he goes on to David's promises to God. How he swore to the Lord, how he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us Go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. What David was praying about is up until this point in Israel's history, the, they had had a pretty nomadic style of worship where they had a tabernacle that went around and they had the Ark of the, the, Ark of the Covenant was this main piece of worship furniture. It was much more than that. And the Ark had really been forsaken during Saul's time and, and during the time of the judges preceding Saul. And David said, we need a place of worship. We need a place where the people can always go to the same place to worship. And so he went out to find the ark that had been neglected and bring it to Jerusalem so that in Jerusalem, God's people could worship, that there would be an established place. This is a, a commitment to worship, that our worship is so important and we've not let it be a really important thing to us. And really what David is vowing to the Lord is I as king, I'm setting out that we as a people are going to take the worship of God more seriously. And you know, Easter can kind of have a little bit of a New Year's resolution type feel to believers. We feel the newness of Easter. We feel the newness of this empty tomb, of this life that we have in Christ. And and we think, well, I, I got to take my worship more seriously. I got to take my walk with the Lord more seriously. I, I need to, to really dig in on these things. And so he continues in verse 8. The song continues. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. Come to Jerusalem where we can meet with you, God. You and the ark of your might. And then they have this prayer and, and this admonition, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn your face away, uh, of, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And then in verse 11, they, they make this change. There's this transitionary bridge, if you will, if you'll humor me with some musical terms, where they go from David's promises to God to look at God's promises to David and ultimately what we're going to see in this last verse of this song that we're going to zero in on are God's promises through David to them and to us. And namely, with God's promises to David, is God's promises to David's line. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. 
from which he will not turn back, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now what we need to realize is there's a long portion of Israel's history where it's like obviously there's a, a royal lineage, there's a, we're in a patriarchal society, there's the, this, the kings all are of this family tree of David. But this song was written after the exile. There's no one on a throne for Judah or Israel. The, the closest thing they had to someone on a throne over them was Persia. And so they're calling out, God, are you gonna, can you remember this promise? Can you remember this promise to David that, that he's always going to have a descendant on the throne? And we know through Scripture that that's Jesus. Who after leaving the tomb spent 40 days on earth teaching the disciples, appearing to different people in different ways, and then finally ascended into heaven and took his rightful place at the throne. So through Easter and Jesus on the throne, let's listen to verses 13 to 18. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies will clothe, I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The promise-making God of heaven exceeds us by establishing his place of worship. This started out with this cry from David, God, I need to give you a resting place. And here, this last verse of the song, God is the one singing. And he's saying, I have chosen my dwelling place, and it's Zion. Now, Zion takes on, this is a complicated word in the Bible sometimes. Sometimes it's a mountain, sometimes it's a city, sometimes it's a city that's going to be. In short, we think of Jerusalem, the mountain in, or the mountain in Jerusalem is Mount Zion. But I want you to think of this word from God. This is my dwelling place here. I, I have desired it. The Lord has chosen Zion. I want you to think of this like a wedding cake. Because it's all one desire from God, but it has tears to it. And so you go to a wedding cake, a wedding, and there's this cake, and it's beautiful, and you can't help but see it, and it's big, and it's, it's more than the average cake. And there's this base layer, and the base layer of this is the original promise, the, the original audience of the promise, that God had set apart Jerusalem for them. He had given this land to Abraham long ago for them. 
He had given this land to them for his worship, for their good, for their blessing. And he had given them this city that one day would have a temple in it, the temple of the Lord, where all the sacrifices of God would be received by God. They didn't have to wander through the hills. They no longer had to set up a tent. They could show up to the temple and they could worship. They didn't have to hope the shrine in their house was enough. They could go to the temple where God's presence on earth resided in its purest form and the Lord of heaven, they could know with certainty that the Lord of heaven will receive my sacrifice. I can go and worship the Lord in confidence. And that's a big deal. To be able to confidently go and cry out to God knowing that he will hear you knowing that he will be with you. It's a great deal of confidence, and that confidence is a great blessing. So that's that base layer. The next layer, that next tier that feeds even more people than the average cake is the new fulfillment or the near fulfillment, and that's us. On the cross, as Jesus died, God the Father introduced the second tier of the cake when he took the veil of the temple and tore it from top to bottom, opening the Holy of Holies to all the world. He ushered in a new era of worship. He changed the world. No longer did we who would desire to offer ourselves to the Lord, to worship him, no longer would we have to go to Jerusalem, but we could do it in such a great place as Des Moines, Iowa. And what's more is he expanded the real estate of the temple when, the, when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come into us and make us the temples. That the holy of holies would be in us. That the, the dwelling place of God, this Zion, would be in us, his believers, his children. That we no longer would need to travel to offer sacrifice, but we could look back on one sacrifice offered for all time and say, Lord, I've sinned. Can what Jesus did on the cross cover and remove my sin? And he says, yes. And it works every time. It works because Jesus was raised from the dead. It's God's ultimate stamp of approval. And because the Holy Spirit has been placed in us. And then we have this top tier of the cake. You know, that tier of the cake that no one gets to touch that day, but is saved for later. And that's the far fulfillment. And that's the new Jerusalem, this top tier, stashed away for a while. One day the Lord himself will return not from a tomb but from the sky, ushering in a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new Zion that lives up to all the ideals and all the holiness and all the righteousness and all the goodness that God has ever set forth for it. The song starts by recalling David's desire to give the Lord a dwelling place. But the last verse begins by the Lord saying, I'm bringing a dwelling place. 
and I have a dwelling place of choice. And it's not just for us. It wasn't just for the original people singing the song, for the original uh, followers and disciples of Christ who witnessed his death and resurrection. And it's not just for us, it's for all tribes, all tongues, all nations. All people who would call on the name of the Lord. The promise-making God of heaven exceeds us by establishing his place of worship and then he invites us to his established city for satisfaction. He invites us into his city. The Lord's invitation here in Psalm 132 reminds me a lot of Christ's invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that a great word from our Savior? And here the Lord. It's almost like there's complete unity within the Trinity. It's eerie. That was a joke. <laughs> Second service will laugh better. I, I trust in them. <laughs> this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And listen to this, verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy the poor with bread. This is, this is redundant. I will abundantly bless her provisions. The word of the Lord is not just a promise to David, but to all who enter a covenant relationship with him. It leans into his abundance and generosity. And what else should we expect from the Lord who at someone else's wedding, three days into the celebration, made barrels of the best wine available? What else should we expect from the Lord who created the Garden of Eden? Well, abundantly bless her provisions. It'll be the best holiday dinner, but without the need for stretchy pants. The Lord does and will care for us over and above. He fills us. He gifts us with the things that are good and perfect. There seems to be this great concern that if I follow the Lord, if I give my life to following Jesus, that I'm going to really miss out. I want to tell you that if you follow the Lord, if you give your life to Him, you will be abundantly provided for. You will be abundantly cared for. You will gain more in the Lord than what you lose in the world. He is the God who satisfies the poor with bread. 
And you start to hear echoes of the Beatitudes here. That those, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. Our God is good, and he is abundant, and he is a providing God. Your hunger will be filled. He invites us to his established city for satisfaction and for joyful salvation. Her priests, I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. The wording here, I don't know if it reminds you of something, but it certainly reminds me of something. It reminds me a lot of Genesis 3. Where Adam and Eve sin, they immediately notice their own nakedness and they seek to be clothed. And the Lord eventually, after confronting them, kills an animal and clothes them with the skin of that animal. But if we go back in this song to verse 9, this, this admonition as we're taking worship more seriously, let the priest be clothed with righteousness. And the saints shout for joy. Let the priests obey the law. Let the priests keep their life together, walk with the Lord according to the word of the Lord so that the righteousness would be evident. So that when we see them coming, we wouldn't say, wow, that's a really nice suit, but we would say, wow, look at that righteousness. That they would be putting on righteousness through the daily work of obeying the Lord. But here it's different I'm not, in verse, in verse 16, I'm not going around trying to do a bunch of good works in order to clothe myself with righteousness, but the Lord himself is giving me clothes of salvation. It's like me going to the store, hoping, knowing I need the nicest clothes they have, seeing the price tag, and saying, I can't pay for that. And then someone coming with even better stuff and saying, I'm giving you this. The Lord clothes us in salvation. He provides for us. He gives us what we cannot give ourselves. And I don't know if you've seen it yet, but as you examine this song and you look at David's promises to the Lord and now looking at God's promises, not just to David, but to all who call on the name of the Lord, we see that the Lord's promises to us far outweigh anything we could promise to him. Because he's the God who does immensely more than all we ask or imagine. He clothes us with salvation and we shout for joy. In Christ, you do not have to find and establish your own righteousness. We are given Christ's righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So he invites us into his established city for satisfaction, joyful salvation, and the benefit of his lordship. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. 
His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. These verses are not about us. They are about our Lord. Out of David, out of the, this is, this is similar to other Old Testament language, out of the stump of Jesse, a sprout has arisen, a shoot has come forward. And here, it's a horn, a horn of salvation. We have these three images, a horn, a lamp, and a crown. These are all aspects of, Lord, of, of Jesus' lordship, aspects that we benefit from, this horn, this victorious life. This conquered salvation that we have. We don't have a salvation that we have to keep trying to fight for, but we have one that's been established, that's been won for us. It is a victorious salvation. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, bringing light to darkness, safety and warmth, clarity to uncertainty. Lord who shines his lamp, exposing what's really there. And a crown. Notice verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame. There it is again. Those who call on the name of the Lord can be clothed with salvation, but his enemies will be clothed with shame. Because a crown does not have a lot of nuance in it, does it? You're either under the crown or you're not. You are either under the authority of that crown or you are not. And there's no, there's no room for nuance in this situation. Our Savior, our risen Savior, is royal. He is on high. Under His reign is peace. He has full authority. Our invitation comes from the King Himself. But He's a victorious King that will not tolerate enemies. And he will one day cast them into the abyss. But he's also a gracious king who turns his enemies into his children. And all of us in here who presently call on the name of the Lord were one day, in the past, enemies of the Lord. We were hostile towards him in our flesh. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, sons of disobedience. God, who is rich in mercy, has made us his children, co-heirs with Christ. The Lord is saying through all of this, to those who went through great pains for earthly worship, and to his followers now who want to worship well, and to those who are feeling lost, who need to be under a shining crown, who need the light of Christ to shine in their lives, who need to be clothed 
in salvation, who are longing to shout for joy. He's saying to all of us, come come and rest under me in my city. Come under my lordship. And there's this battle within us where a lot of times we are trying to sit on that throne. We are trying to be the one who is Lord of our lives. We are trying to be the one who calls all the shots, who does things according to what instinctively feels best inside of me. And then are continually having to pick up the pieces when that doesn't go well. And the Lord is saying, would you want to benefit from my crown? Would you get off the throne of your life and let me take my rightful place? Let me make your heart real estate for my worship and temple. I will bring you into my new city, one day into my full kingdom, and I'll do it starting now. We have a good God. His promises to us exceed our promises to him. And of his rule and reign, there will be no end. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this salvation that you have made possible. Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not yet know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, would you, would you turn their hearts to you? And if you're here this morning and you don't know that Christ is your Savior, you don't know that you're under his crown, under his lordship, would you now enter into that by placing your faith in him and asking him to forgive you of your sins and give you new life and a life that is fully committed to him? Father, we praise you for this great work that you've done in raising Jesus from the dead, having absolute victory, And we long for his return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.